Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. And let me pray and ask God to bless this time as we come to his word. Father, we would be in the dark if it wasn't for your words. There's a lot in creation that we can look to and it tells us a lot about you. But the most important things that we need to know you have preserved for us in the scriptures. You revealed yourself, who you are. You revealed what's true about us in terms of our need for you. And you've told us who Jesus is and your intentions. And you've declared your gospel here. And so we're grateful that this morning we get to read from this book that you have preserved. And we ask, Father, that it would do its work. We would hear. We would respond. That your spirit would be at work within us, taking these truths and applying them individually to our lives. And that as a community of grace, together, we would live this out. This is a work that you must do. We're grateful that you've begun it. And that you'll complete it. And that's why we're here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. We started this last week. We looked at one aspect of this. We looked at this man whose son was possessed by a demon. We saw his deficiency of faith. And this morning we're going to take another look at this. We're going to think about the disciples. Mark 9, 14 through 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams, grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground. He rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And together we say, the grass withers and the flowers falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. One of the more fascinating experiments in the book of Mark, if you were just to 
read through it and ask yourself this question as you read through it. Who gets Jesus? Who who understands who Jesus really is? And there's two answers to that question. Two categories of people who understand who Jesus is. The first category who understands, who knows who Jesus is, are the demons. In the four different accounts, you find that they know exactly who Jesus is. In a couple of the cases, they'll say, I know who you are, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. And in this case, there's not this speech interaction, but immediately when the demon in the boy sees Jesus, he reacts and he responds to him. So the demons get it. The other category is Jesus. He knows who he is. He knows what his true identity is. He knows that he is the king, that he has come to bring the kingdom of God. The crowds don't get it. The Jewish leaders don't get it. And even through the lens of Mark, the disciples don't get it. And all of them are kind of cast in a similar light of unbelief. That they see, but they don't quite understand. And even though there's a couple different courses charted, there there are those who will never see and understand. And the disciples are on a path to see and understand. They're all kind of cast in the same place. The disciples are generally confused in the dark about who Jesus is, at least up to the point of the resurrection and Pentecost. And last week, as we considered this passage, we discussed how the previous section, the transfiguration and this account are linked together, that the transfiguration shows for us the glory of the king that is unveiled to those who are present, that we see that Elijah and Moses are there and Peter, James and John, they see Jesus and his glory unveiled. And yet this account that follows is this picture where Jesus steps down from his glory into the real world, the fallen place of humanity where there's rebellion and sin and brokenness in the situation of this man whose son is tormented by a demon, whose life is ravaged by this situation. And Jesus steps into the situation of the real world. We see that the two are connected. It shows that the kingdom of God has come into this real world, into the fallen place of pain and sorrow. And the situation with these two linked and the the passage we're looking at really demonstrates that there's two issues that Jesus steps into. There's two places of fallenness. We see the man's son who is possessed by this demon that Jesus addresses And we considered his situation last week that we looked at the nature of his unbelief and this cry, I believe, help my unbelief. And we found that simply his belief, his unbelief was a a deficiency of belief that Jesus holds out this promise. All things are, are possible for those who believe. And the man, as he looks at his own life, as he looks at his own faith, he realizes, I don't even have the faith that's necessary to apprehend And to make use of the promise you've given to me. And then Jesus says, yes, you don't. And so I will provide what you don't have. That the true state of our human experience is that we find that we are deficient in faith. That belief is sometimes hard to come by. And his cry, I believe, help my unbelief, is our cry. It's in those crucial moments in our lives where we don't know where else to to go. We find that our own faith is deficient We cry out, and it charts the course for our hearts. 
It gives us words and a pattern to follow when we find the limitations of our own faith that we can't quite muster up what's necessary to make use of the promises that God gives to us. But there's another situation going on. We see that unbelief of the man, another side of the story that Mark gives to us, that Jesus faces as he returns from the mountains, and that's the failure of his own disciples. That Jesus steps back into the situation, the center of the story is the man, the most gut-wrenching one is this man, but sandwiched in the story are his disciples' failure. At the beginning and the end of this account, we see that his disciples are right in the middle of this. As Peter, James, and John come with Jesus back into the situation, his disciples have created a kind of firestorm, an argument that's present. And even a situation where this own man, this father's faith has been compromised because of the failure of the disciples. It's present. There's a mess that's been created that Jesus needs to clean up. And so this morning, I want to look this morning at this situation related to the disciples' failure. This man is central, but the disciples are also in view in this story. And thus we have this haunting statement right in the middle of the text that this man says, So I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able. And the question we want to ask this morning as we look at the disciples is why did they fail? What prevented them from being able to do what they sought to do? What kept them from being able to exercise the demon from this boy? Why were they not able? And more importantly for us is the the importance of this is we, as Jesus' own disciples, we look at this question and it's important for us because we too want to be representatives of Christ. We want to be his disciples. We want to be faithful. And so we ask the question, what can we learn from their failure that will help us? What can we learn from how they weren't able to take care of this situation that will enable us to walk faithfully as Jesus' disciples? And as the man, the father's failure was connected with unbelief, so the disciples' need is related to their own form of unbelief. Not just a deficiency of belief, but there's something else going on that we see that's present. And so really I want to ask the question, what's wrong, what's missing in their Faith, what is present there that would keep them from being able to be successful? And so as we walk through this, we're going to learn from their failure as Jesus' disciples seeking to carry out his plan today. We'll walk through it. First of all, we want to see that the king brings order to the chaos in verses 14 through 16. When they came down to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them. Scribes arguing with them, and immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and they ran up to him and greeted him, and he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? What's the scene that Jesus comes to as he comes down from the mountain, from his glory that's revealed? He comes down into this place. What's the scene? It's a, it's a scene of a great argument. There's turmoil that's going on. There's a chaotic situation that the, the rest of the disciples are embroiled in. It's an argument with the Jewish leaders, the scribes, the Jewish law- lawyers of that day were arguing with the nine disciples. Apparently a very heated argument. The language seems to carry this idea. It's very combative. So it's a heated argument between the nine and the Jewish leaders. 
And, and the subject of the argument seems to be this. It's probably related to the fact that they were unsuccessful and failed at attempting to exercise this demon. That what's happened here and that in their failure, they've opened up Jesus's ministry to some sort of suspicion on account of their failure. That there's questions to be asked and the argument and the place of the ground in which these Jewish leaders now have a, a place to question the legitimacy of Jesus' ministry is the failure of the nine disciples. And thus this argument breaks out. The scribes have been sent likely to be cross-examining Jesus and to investigate his ministry, to describe or to find out the legitimacy, the veracity of his ministry. And this failure has opened it up to question. And so Jesus steps into the situation and he brings order to chaos and everything begins to be focused on him but then in verse 19 as he steps into this this man gives us the narrative of what's happened to his son he recounts how is that the disciples of jesus could not cast out the demon and then verse 19 jesus says these words "O faithless generation how long am i to be with you how long am i to bear with you I don't know about you, but these are surprising words to me. They're a bit perplexing. They express the weary heart of Jesus, and they seem a little bit surprising to me. Oh, faithless generation. And the question for us today is, who are these words exactly directed at? And what do they mean? In the middle of the situation, the failure of the disciples, this man's son who is still possessed by a demon, the Jews... Jewish leaders in a place now to question Jesus' ministry, he says these words. What do we get from them? What do we gather from them? As best I can tell, what we have is a lament. It's a divine lament. If you know anything about a lament, it might be a word you use or, not, or don't use, but we gather it from the Old Testament. There's many different places in the Psalms especially where we have Psalms of lament. And a lament is just simply this. It's an expression of sadness or sorrow over a present reality. It's a sadness or sorrow or even anger over a present situation that's, that's, that's here and now. That you see and you look around and you go, oh, I wish it weren't like this. I wish somehow it were different. And it's a cry. It's a lament. But what a lament is not, by the way, is not this kind of despondent response of, complaint it's not a despondence of of uh, that that basically is complaining or whining but it's an honest cry and what a lament does it looks forward to god's purposes even in the present situation a lament looks forward to the hope of what god intends to do even in light of the honest view of the real circumstances of the present reality it's sad it's hard i'm upset I wish it were different. It says it's an honest expression, and yet it holds on to a future hope that God intends to do even in the midst of this reality. And Jesus laments in this situation. But the $100,000 question for us is, who is it directed at? Oh, faithless generation, the other versions of the gospel tell us he throws in, oh, twisted generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Who is this directed at? Is it directed at the scribes who are cross-examining Jesus? 
Is it directed at the crowds who are just kind of watching and wondering what's going to happen? Is it directed at his own disciples who are in the middle of the situation and, and not sure what to do? And I thought I had a foolproof answer to that question about halfway through this week. And all the commentators don't exactly give a foolproof answer to this. I had it all together and I read one more commentary on, from Bill's uh, collection. I go, I'll read one more commentary. And he threw me a curve a curveball. I said, what do you know anyway, right? So, and here, here's what's going on. I think it's best as we look at this situation, as who this is directed at. First of all, that, that Mark, in the way that he paints the picture of humanity, he doesn't draw clear and hard distinctions between anybody apart from Jesus. There's Jesus and there's everybody else in some gradient of getting it and not getting it. Thus, the scribes, the crowds, and the disciples are all generally in the same category. They don't get Jesus. Now, thankfully, the lights will come on for some, but not for others. And so as we think about Mark's intention to say everybody's in the same place to some degree, I think it's best to understand and interpret this passage, who it's directed at, this lament, as everyone who's listening Everyone who's present in this situation who represents this attitude. Oh, faithless generation. But I think there seems to be good reason to believe that the disciples were especially targeted and tagged in this statement. That in view of Jesus are his own disciples. And I think that because it immediately follows the man's words and they were not able. They were not able to accomplish what they sought to do, to bring and manifest the power of the kingdom. And Jesus immediately steps in and he says and gives and offers this lament. Now, it's important for us to remember that his own disciples had been commissioned earlier. And if you have your Bibles open, turn really two pages before in in Mark chapter 6, verse 7. Your Bibles probably have a heading that says something like this. Jesus sends out the 12 apostles. In verse 12, in verse 7, we're told, Mark 6, verse 7, and he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits, and then jumped down to verse 12. So they went down and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed many with oil, and they were healed. They had been successful in the past. Why were they not successful now? And so the disciples' failure had opened Jesus and his ministry up to ridicule and the people's gawking. And Jesus offers this lament at his disciples and all those who are listening. Oh, faithless generation. This language, this picture harkens back to the the generation of the Israelites. If you remember that they saw the miraculous acts of God in deliverance out of Egypt. And yet they did not believe. They were faithless. The word literally means without faith. They lacked faith to see and apprehend what God had done. And Jesus says, I'm here. God and the things that he had done, even up to this point, reveal the power and the acts of God. And those watching were faithless to see and apprehend. And so he says, oh, faithless generation. 
How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear? How long am I to endure you? If you read through the Gospel of Mark up to this point in this, you find that the disciples have a track record of unbelief. They have not understood what's going on. They have certainly been confused. We see this evidence of unbelief in their own life. Now, there's a couple of ways we can understand this, this lament, how long am I to be with you, right? If you're a parent, you know these words. They might not come out quite so well. How long do I have to deal with you? Go to your room, right? Get away from me. And if we hear in those ways, maybe that's not quite how we're supposed to understand Jesus' words. How long am I supposed to be with you? How long I can't wait to get away from you? But however, through the lens of faith, through the, the lens of hope of what God intends to do, I think there's a different way to understand these words. How long am I to endure with you? And I think this is what Jesus is, is sorry about, is sad about, is the lack of faith. But his hopefulness in this is that there will be a day when that faith that is missing now will be filled in. He anticipates and looks forward to, even in the lament in this present moment, as their faith is not seen clearly, that there will be a day where faith faith will be formed in them. Where belief will be evidenced in their lives. You don't have to read very much farther in the Bible until you get to the book of Acts and you find that they are faithful. Not perfect, but they're faithful and they're filled with faith as they live that out. And Jesus anticipates, even in this lament, a day in their lives, a day in our lives where there will be faith that will be filled in. It anticipates a better future that's there. One commentator wrote this. I picked up this last week. Jesus can expel demonic forces at a word, but the evoking of faith is a much harder matter. You see what the author did? He says there's, there's a distinction to be made here between expelling demonic forces and growing and cultivate faith. And in one respect, I don't know how I feel about saying some things are harder for God than other things. But I think this is the point. The matter of growing faith in us is a different kind of thing altogether. For faith to be produced in us, to be grown in us, takes time. And circumstances, and dare I even say, failure. And that matter, not to say it's harder, but it takes more time for God to produce faith in us. And so Jesus laments the situation, even in hope of what would be done. But then the king steps into the void. He controls the chaos. He laments. And then he says, bring the boy to me. You failed You couldn't do this. Now bring him to me. I think this for us is important to see what Jesus is is up to. See, there's only one who can truly step into the void of our lives. To step into the void of what's lacking in our ability to manifest the kingdom of God to the world. His disciples' intentions were good. They were trying to bring about, to manifest the kingdom to the world, to demonstrate and represent Jesus to truly help, and yet they couldn't. And there was a void that was created in what they couldn't do. And this is where we come to understand that there is a non-quantifiable distance and distinction between the king and his subjects, between the master and his disciples. In that day and age, kind of the, the training process of master-disciple 
of rabbi and disciple, there wouldn't have been a great difference. So certainly there's a teacher and you would follow him and you would represent him. And that would have been a normal pattern or model that they would have seen such that the teacher might actually have become at some point as great as the master in the course of time. But in this model, this paradigm between Jesus, the king, and us, Jesus wants to clarify something. There's an infinite distinction between Jesus and everyone else. And this might seem obvious to all of us, but I think it bears stating that believing in Jesus' disciples is not the same as believing in Jesus. And that's what Jesus needs to demonstrate to this man as he sought to believe in his own disciples and they had failed. Jesus wants to establish this man's belief and root this man's belief ultimately and absolutely in himself. The disciples had failed. Jesus will not. We do represent Jesus in real kinds of ways. We desire to honor him and reflect him accurately. And yet there's an important and an infinite distinction between us and Jesus. Between us as disciples and him as the king, as our master. And Jesus wants to root and ground this man's faith and belief in himself. Don't be confused here. There's one master and everyone else are disciples. There's one king and everyone else are subjects. Because we know this for a fact, right? Disciples fail. We fail. We have failed. And we will fail each other. Even as we try to to bring and manifest the greatness of the kingdom, even as we try to represent Jesus to each other, we'll fail. That's not our goal. It's not our desire. But we will. And Jesus says, therefore, your faith, your belief must be ultimately and absolutely in me, not in my disciples. Don't miss this point, church. This is so true for us. Otherwise, our faith will be affected. Jesus says, look at me, because this we know for a fact. He will not fail us. He is faithful to thee, and he will never change. Even if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And Jesus steps into the void that's been created by the disciples and says, Trust me. Believe in me. Then we go on. The coach. King as coach. This is a little bit cheesy, I know, but we see that this king offers a lament. He steps into the void. And then what happens after he steps in the situation? He heals this young man. And then what does he do? He pulls him aside. 28 and 29. And when they had entered the house, he pulls them away. His disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. See, Jesus isn't finished with his disciples. Even in the midst of his failure, even in the midst of Jesus' own lament, he's not finished with them. The disciples see their own failure. They see the impact on this man's faith. They see that Jesus has stepped into the void, reestablished this man's faith in himself, and he's picked up the pieces and he's putting it back together. Jesus laments the present reality even as he seeks to create and bring about a future reality, even the transformation of his own disciples in the context of their failure. 
And here we begin to dissect and understand what's truly wrong with the disciples' faith. We see the nature of their failure. That Jesus pulls them aside. I love this picture that he pulls them away. And if you, if you enjoy these kinds of things, you can look at four different times in the book of Mark. Four different times we see that Jesus pulls them inside a house. It's been after a teaching that's been hard. It's been after an event that's difficult to instruct them more clearly or specifically to them. Mark 4.10, 7.17, in this place and in 10.10, all of them, Jesus gathers his disciples away from everything else in order to instruct them about the situation. That's what's happening here. He says, I want you to understand. I want to teach you. I want to help you understand what's going on in this situation. Why you failed. Came across this quote. I'm reading a book right now called Spiritual Leadership by J. Oswald Sanders. Not Chambers. Oswald Sanders. And in it, he he writes this about Jesus' training. Jesus trained his disciples superbly for their future roles. He taught by example and by precept. His teaching was done on the road. Jesus did not ask the 12 to sit down and take notes in a formal classroom. Jesus' classrooms were the highways of life. The principles and values came across in the midst of daily experience. Jesus placed his disciples into internships that enabled them to learn through failure and success. We see that Jesus says, I don't want you to miss this opportunity in your failure to learn and to grow and to be transformed. And here in this account, in Jesus' instruction of them as he pulls them away, we begin to dig below the surface and understand their failure a little bit more. Here in the house, alone with just Jesus, perhaps a little bit embarrassed by their failure, about the situation that they themselves had created as they tried to help this man. They asked the question, why why couldn't we do what we had done before? Why couldn't we exercise this demon? What prevented us from truly and accurately and faithfully representing you to this man and his family? Why couldn't we do it? It's an important question they ask. I love it today. It's presented there. What do we do? And Jesus' answer is a bit perplexing at first. He says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but by prayer. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. I'm not sure exactly what the kind means, but the emphasis on this passage, on these words, is that it cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And it tells us something very simple of where his disciples had went wrong. It seems that very simply they had just neglected to pray. They had forgotten to pray in the midst of this situation. One commentator wrote this. They had been given provisional authority earlier. Perhaps they misunderstood that provisional authority as their sole possession. They thought it was theirs. And Jesus reminds them the real source of their power, the real place that it comes from, that it doesn't originate from them ever and never will it. It comes from another source. It comes from God himself. Because this is what prayer is. Prayer is dependence, reliance ultimately upon God. And here we begin to see the seeds of their failure and the form of their unbelief that it took. 
See, the man, the father's unbelief was simply a deficiency of faith. The unbelief of the Jewish leaders was a resistance and a reluctance even to believe. But you see, the unbelief of the disciples was something a little bit different. It was self-reliance. It was self-sufficiency. It was they had come to depend on themselves. They had misunderstood their past successes. And they attributed them to their power as something that they had they had misunderstood and misapplied it. And there's little in the Christian life to reduce our power and our effectiveness like self-reliance. Like thinking we have what it takes. Jesus reminds us of this. I read this from John 15 earlier, but the one verse right in the middle of it where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The imagery there, you must abide in me if you want to produce anything good. I've always been struck by that last statement. Apart from me, you can do nothing And we ask the question, can't we do something? And the answer is, well, you can do something, but nothing that's any good. Nothing that's going to bring about fruit. Nothing that's going to produce faith. In fact, anything that you do of your own power will only diminish or hurt or affect negatively the faith of others. Only as we abide in the vine can fruit truly be bore in and through us as we rely upon him. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God, has this this idea of of the veil that keeps us from experiencing God, that prevents us from the the power of God at work in our lives. And this veil he describes as the self-life. Let me read just a couple of sentences It, this is this veil that separates us from God. It is woven of the fine threads of the self-life, the hyphenated sins of the human spirit. They are not something we do. They are something we are. And therein lies both their subtlety and their power. To be specific, the self-sins are self-righteousness, self-pity, self-confidence, self-sufficiency, self-admiration, self-love, and a host of others like them. They dwell too deep within us and are too much a part of our natures to come to our attention until the light of God is focused upon them. And he goes on further. Self is the opaque veil that hides the face of God from us. It can be removed only in spiritual experience, never by mere instruction. Dare I say it can be removed only by God himself. And it's in and through our own failures as we see our self-reliance, our self-sufficiency, our self-dependence, ugly as it is right in front of us in our failure, that we come to see our need for God and this true source of his power. See, the disciples crash into failure, revealed the true source of power for anything they would seek to do for the kingdom, for any fruit they would seek to bear, for any good that they would seek to do for anyone else must come alone from God himself. And their self-sufficiency had prevented them from being able to do good. For Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And Jesus steps into the situation to instruct his disciples in their failure. 
understand what's going on. To see it and to reconnect it back where it needs to be. And it tells us something. These words, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer, tells us something about the essence of prayer. The essence of prayer at its heart is dependence upon God. It's dependence upon God. And by the way, dependence of God will always lead us to prayer. The two are connected. When I look at my own life, when am I most prone to pray? When all of my resources have been exhausted, that's when I pray. When everything else to depend on is gone, I pray. And prayer is at its essence utter dependence, a cry to God for help. By the way, a question that I have mulled over, why is it that Christians around the world seem to more naturally pray than I do or we do as American Christians? And maybe it's because the human resources they have at their disposal is much less than we have. And we work through all of our human resources before we realize, oh yeah, there's only one defined divine resource that's necessary. The very essence of prayer is dependence upon God. They had missed that. Yet the question for us as we look at the failure of the disciples and their reluctance to pray, their self-sufficiency, their unbelief, which prevented them from really praying, how do we cultivate that? How do we live in a world with all these resources at our disposal of which we think these will produce the kingdom of God? How do we deal with and cultivate reliance and dependence upon God? And that's an answer. I don't know that we have time. I'm certainly not the one to explain that because that's a work of God to deal with this veil that prevents us from seeing and knowing him of self-sufficiency. But I have three thoughts on that that are very short. Three thoughts as it relates to this account and this narrative that we have. First of all, as we look back, a proper understanding of our successes is critical. To look back at the times that we've been successful, to acknowledge and to recognize where that success came from. That did not originate from us. The source of the success was the power of God and we must interpret it properly no matter what that success was because that is the danger for all of us. That we will see those successes that somehow that came as a result of something inherent in me that I have. So interpret properly our successes. Secondly, be aware of this self-life that Tozer talks about that's woven into our souls. Not simply or easily is it eradicated It will always be with us. We live with it for the rest of our lives. Self-reliance is always right there. And especially in success. Especially in those moments when we've done well and something good has been the outcome. We want to take credit. Oh, yeah. And God says, interpret that properly and look and see this is always present. And then finally, there's no way around it in, in reading this narrative to know that the way that we deal with a self-reliance requires failure in our part. It requires us to fail in real times, in real ways with real people right in front of us where we fail them. And to humbly acknowledge, humbly recognize, oh yeah, we failed. I failed. I depended on myself. I didn't realize the true source of the strength 
And we're reminded in those times, in those places, Jesus pulls us into the house and he instructs us in our failure. He says, don't let that define you, but remember this. And sometimes his instruction for us is as simple as it was for the disciples. You forgot to pray. You forgot to remember the true source of your power. And so we begin to understand what's the problem and the failure, the source of the failure. And we identify with these disciples and we realize, oh yeah, self-reliance and self-sufficiency is always present. And Jesus shows us that even in our failure, something transformative can take place. As we see our need for him, that the king must be and his power must be the one that's available to us. Final point. I can't go on without saying this. The king has stepped into the situation. He's lamented. He's stepped into the void to bring established faith in himself. We see that this faith, this unbelief on the disciples part is simply a self-sufficiency. But I don't want to conclude without stating something else that should give us great joy and confidence. Lest we're afraid of failure, shaking, or in some way affecting the kingdom of God. If you read through Acts, you see that the power of God in the lives of these men, though never perfected through the power and reliance on the Spirit and God's work in them, they turned the world upside down. And so we can have great confidence that the kingdom of God is unshakable. There's nothing we can do, success or failure, that will shake, that will affect ultimately the kingdom of God. That the king is on his throne. He's carrying out his plan. And even in this, he's using their failure in their lives and he steps in to bring good. And lest our fear of failure would prevent us from moving forward and truly seeking to follow and represent Christ in the world around us, we recognize that this kingdom that we live in is unshakable. The king is present instilling faith in us. It's revealing, he's revealing our own self-reliance and establishing our faith upon him. It says, trust me. Only I can bring this about. I'm going to fin- finish with a quote it's a quote that looks like this. It's a very pretty quote. It's, my, it's from my wife. It's from an author that she reads. And she's made it really pretty. But these words are powerful. <clears throat> I'm the one in whom Christ dwells and delights. I live in a strong and unshakable kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not in trouble and neither am I. I live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. The kingdom is not in trouble and neither am I. And I think the great confidence we have as we look at this passage is to remind us, yeah, there's failure. The king is able. And with the confidence he gives us to represent him to the world in failure and success, we have a great joy that he will use us in this process of manifesting his goodness so the people will hear. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your work in our lives. We're grateful that we can see this and we see an honest picture of, of men and women who fail and we come into that place and we ask, would you fill the void? Would our faith be established ultimately in you? And Father, would you remove and extract, eradicate self-reliance 
Would you call us to pray? Would you call us to act? Would you help us to help each other in that process? And help us to remember in the end, your kingdom is firm. It will not be shaken. And any shaking that goes on is under your control. Help us as a church to be faithful. Help us to be full of faith as we live out the truth of who you are. Help us to remember that you are good. Father, we we think about the needs in our congregation, yet even today we continue to pray that you would be with the the Ritter family and, and Catherine as she waits for the results of this test, that you would uphold them and strengthen them. We pray for the Randolph family. Uh, in the midst of this tragedy that has 